Yeah, I love that we got a team in India right now. We also have a couple of teams that have just uh, gotten back recently as well. We had a young adult team that went to Cuba and got back just a couple weeks ago. We also had a team that went to Brazil, Brazil and just got back on Monday this week. There were 100 people who put their faith in Jesus while our mission team was in Brazil. So praise the Lord for what God is up to and how the Lord is working. I love to see how the Spirit is working through Bentree all around the world. I'm Steve Frizzell, one of the pastors here. Uh, If this is your first time, we are so, so glad that you're here and worshiping with us today. Uh, You can take your Bibles, you can open up to Isaiah chapter 6, like Libin mentioned. He'll be back next week as we'll uh, continue in our series, but uh, like he said just a second ago, take your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 6, we'll be looking in there here in a moment. The last two weeks, Libin's been leading us in the series, and if you've missed any of the sermons, please go back and listen to them. They've been so good and so important for us as a church and where we're going with our future. And if you were here last week, you heard Libin call us to, invite us to, encourage us to step into sent conversations. Our heart, our hope, our desire is that all of us collectively, the body of Jesus, would be engaged in intentional, spiritual conversations that are filled with compassion while we're connecting with people who don't know Jesus. We want to consistently engage in these sent conversations every single week. We want to live mobilized. Last week, Libin defined these sent conversations like this. A sent conversation is an intentional, spiritual conversation with someone who may not yet be a follower of Jesus. So as we go out into our families, our communities, our workspaces, the the places in which we do life, our heart, our hope is that we're engaging in these intentional, spiritual conversations with someone who may not yet be a follower of Jesus. And these sent conversations, they could be you sharing the gospel of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. It could be that. Your sent conversation could also be uh, you sharing how the gospel is changing your life. It could be just you sharing a story of what God is up to and how he's working. I'm not sure if this counts yet or not, but uh, maybe you could use like bad dad jokes. Like you could go and be like, hey, do you know why they don't let Jesus into jewelry stores? Because he breaks every chain. Super bad, right? I don't even like that joke. I mean, I like that Jesus is a chain breaker, but I don't know if that counts. Does that, Bob, you're an elder. Does that count? It counts? You'll let that, you'll let that. Okay, great. Bad dad jokes from another dad says they're fine. So there we go. There we go. Um, What I'm finding, actually, when I'm engaging in sent conversations as I'm connecting with people, what I'm learning is these sent conversations are actually best when it's not so much me saying anything, but me asking questions. Like there's an intentionality that comes when I'm coming into a conversation with the person, not seeing them as a project or a goal or anything like that, but with deep compassion, I'm connecting with them and getting to know them. So it's asking them questions about their life and their journey. And, and if they're vulnerable and share something hard they went through, it's asking like, how did that impact you? And what were you feeling? And what were some of the things that you were thinking about? And do, do you think that God fits into that in any way? And did you struggle with the hard thing you walked through and the concept of a loving God? Like there's questions that we can ask where we're spending time with people. You can ask people like, hey, like, what do you think of prayer? Or, or you can even lead in and just go, how can I pray for you? You can ask people, like, what do you think about God? 
What do you think God thinks about you? You can ask the question, what's been your experience with church? And there's a chance that they've had some positive experiences, but there's also a chance they've had some negative experiences. And, and if they share negative experiences they've had with the church, there's a listening with empathy that we can have where Jesus shows up and, and loves them well. So the scent conversations, it's not always just like a, you know, walking them through the Bible or, or, or having like a, a real conversation around Jesus' death and resurrection. There's so much that can happen in these intentional conversations that we have that are leading to spiritual things as we get to know people with a heart of curiosity So we're compelled by the love of Jesus. Now, if you're anything like me, you might struggle with having sent conversations. Throughout my life, this has been something that hasn't come easy for me. It's been hard for me. Because I work in ministry, because like I, I literally, like my job, I'm working with Christians. I've found myself in seasons in my life where I don't have really close relationships with anyone who doesn't know Jesus. I was actually living in the bubble, like a holy huddle, all my close friends were followers of Jesus, and that's been something that I don't love when I've been in those seasons of my life. Another struggle for me, maybe you can relate to this, is just having doubts about yourself, right? Like our insecurities can keep us from engaging in sent conversations. I've often felt like, man, they're going to ask a question I won't have the answer to, I won't know how to explain this, I'm not smart enough, I doubt my intellect, when I was younger, I used to doubt my age. Now at this phase of my life, when I talk to young people, I doubt my age again because I'm old. Right? Like we go through this journey of different things that we can have doubts in and insecurities about ourselves. Another thing that has been a, what has been a struggle for me, the reason I've struggled with this is I've thought I'm too busy. I've got too many things, too many people in my life, too many kids in my life. I've got like... So much stuff in my life. I don't have time to slow down for these intentional spiritual conversations. There's too much going on. Honestly, what I've struggled with the most, though, is fear. I, I can get pretty fearful. I've had plenty of moments where it's like God orchestrated the whole thing. Like he just laid it up for me to engage in a sense conversation with someone and I don't because of fear. I'm afraid of offending them. I'm afraid of making them feel embarrassed or uncomfortable. I'm afraid of how they'll perceive me. I'm afraid of a break in the relationship. Sometimes I get fearful because I don't want to be associated with unhealthy Christians who wound others, and so I hold back. There's different things that we might have that are fears within us that keep us from fully engaging and being totally available to the Spirit's leading. Anybody relate to any of that? Three of you are as pathetic as me. That's great. I'm so glad that the three of us are this... Yeah, maybe you resonate and relate with some of those. I think all of those are normal feelings to have because they're normal to me. And you may have some other ones, some other things, reasons that you don't fully engage in these kind of conversations with people who don't know Jesus. And those reasons feel normal to you. And if you've ever struggled with being fully engaged and sent conversations, 
Here's something that's super powerful. This is so important. You might want to write it down. It's going to change your life. Are you ready? All humans are humans. I know it took me way too long to figure this out. But every single person is an ordinary person, just like I'm an ordinary person and you're an ordinary person. We're all just human beings, normal people. But the thing that is a a challenge for me is, is I compare myself to other people. And when I look at other people who this just comes natural for them, they're good at it. It seems effortless. I'm like, how do you do that? Are you superhuman? Do you have a better version of the Holy Spirit than me? Like, do I need to upgrade? Like what is happening that I feel so inadequate and so poor at this and you're so great at it? But what I've learned is every human being is a human being. Every person is a normal person, just like you, just like me. Even the people that make it look effortless, they are just another ordinary person trusting the Holy Spirit, just like you, just like me, just like the woman that shared the gospel with me when I was five years old and it forever changed my life. Just like the person that shared the gospel with you, whoever they were, they were an ordinary person sharing the truth and love of Jesus, and it changed your life forever. So what we have to wonder, what we have to ask ourselves today, and what we're going to look at today is what is it that moves us past our insecurities, our doubts, our fears, our busyness, all the things that keep us disengaged? What is it that has to happen to get us just like other people who follow Jesus get fully engaged in walking into sent conversations. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a, an ordinary man named Isaiah and what God did in his life that moved him to a place where he spent the rest of his life telling people about a Messiah. And he said it to people over and over who would never listen to him. So Isaiah chapter six, verse one. What we're gonna see here is that God gave Isaiah a vision. Isaiah six, one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now this This is a marked moment for Isaiah and for the people of Judah. So when he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, it would be like a cultural understanding for us, like in the year that the planes flew into the World Trade Center towers. It was a marked time and moment for the people of Judah. And in this season, this is a hard season for Isaiah, especially because he's related to Uzziah. So it's a family member that's gone. But this was a king who was king for 52 years. We don't have a category for that because the way leadership is set up in the U.S. is you have a president for a term. There's a limit to how many terms they can serve. So we have turnover, right? For them, it was a king for 52 years. And imagine this. Not just one leader for 52 years, a great leader for 52 years. Wouldn't we all love to have like a president that's amazing for 50 years, right? Here's what they had. They had this King Uzziah who was an incredible military leader. They beat the Philistines and they had a long, beautiful season of peace. He was this builder and this designer of things. And so there was a lot of buildings that were done. He was incredibly smart and a strong leader. So it was a prosperous time for them as well. So imagine 52 years of peace, prosperity, a sweet season for the nation of Judah. It was similar to like the time of Solomon, if you're familiar with the history of the Jewish people. It was that kind of a season where everything's good. And now this king for 52 years, who was a great king, is gone. 
He's the one that they were looking to and finding certainty in. And now everything is uncertain. The throne is empty. The king is dead. The Assyrians are sharpening their swords. Prophets have been talking about a coming judgment. There is high anxiety for the people. And it's in this moment and this time where there's so much uncertainty, God shows Isaiah what he can be certain of. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And now Isaiah tries to do the best he can with limited vocabulary to describe the undescribable vision of what God gave him. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high. He was lifted up. He was on his throne. He's on this throne that's this heavenly throne. It's lofty and high and lifted up. It's divine, this place that he is. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he's trying to explain what, what he saw. And he says he has this train of his robe. It filled the temple. And kings in this time, they would have robes with long trains because they're hard to maneuver in. And they would wear a train with a long robe that's hard to maneuver in so that other people have to wait on them. It was a way to show like they're so dignified, they're so special that other people wait on them. And so Isaiah, trying to describe this undescribable vision, he says, I I saw the Lord, he's on his throne, he's high, he's lifted, it's lofty, it's heavenly. And his robe, his robe that it's filling the temple, it's going everywhere. The train of his robe is so big, so great, it's just filling up the space. And Isaiah, continuing to try and describe this vision, describes the next thing that he saw. He saw these beings that were there, these seraphim. Above him, above the Lord, on this throne were seraphim, each with six wings. And seraphim, this this is a being that's made of light. It's on fire. It's a being of fire and light. And what he says is, I saw these beings, these beings of light, and they're up above the Lord, and they had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. So there are these brilliant, incredible beings made of light and fire around the presence of God with six wings. And these incredible beings that would have been amazing to look at, even these beings are going, we can't be in the presence of this God. They have two wings covering their eyes saying, we're not even worthy to look upon the Lord on his throne. With two wings, they cover their feet saying, we're not even worthy to stand and be the presence of this God on his throne. And with two other wings, they're flying, showing activity. Four wings is adoration and humility. We can't be in the presence of this God on a throne. And with two wings, it's activity showing we're ready to serve, to go, to do anything at a moment's notice for the Lord that's on his throne. And Isaiah doesn't just see these beings. He hears them. They're speaking to each other, making this declaration. They were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full 
of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. In our Old Testament, there are a few references to God as a triune God, Father, Son, Spirit. And here's one of them. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Another reason why this is repeated three times for Isaiah is he wrote this out as in Hebrew, the way they would show intensity is through repetition. This is the way their language and grammar is set up. We, we see an example of it in Kings. It talks about how they were moving around some gold. The commander of the imperial guard took away the censers and sprinkling bowls and all that were made of pure gold or silver. This is what our English Bible says, but in the Hebrew, it says that made of gold, gold. It was a way for them to say it was the goldest of gold. This is why there's the names of God. He's the king of kings. Of all the kings, he is the kingliest of all the kings. Of all the lords, he's the lord of all the lords. When they talked about the temple and where his presence was, there were holy places, but this was the holiest of all the holy places. So here are these beings, these seraphim, they know one holy doesn't do for this God. Two holies certainly isn't enough. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This God that's exalted, high, lifted up on a throne, he's so holy, he's so set apart, he's so other than, he's so different than everything else. We just have to continue to proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. If everything else ceases to exist, he still stands. Everything else is creation. He alone is creator. He alone holds this place of great holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And this name, Lord God Almighty, this is a name that the Jews would use when they would talk about God when he brought them a military victory. In your version of the Bible, it might say the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts. But here it says, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This God is the God that brings victory. So here what these angels are saying is, holy, 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 so holy is this God that brings victory. He brings victory. The earth is filled with his glory. Holiness, God's holiness and his glory always go hand in hand. When he reveals holiness, we see glory. And he's so holy that there's no containing his glory. His glory fills the earth. Isaiah is so overwhelmed with this whole scene. He's trying to describe it. Here are these, these seraphim. They're proclaiming, calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And look at what, not only is he hearing, but look at what he's feeling and sensing what's happening. At the sound of their voices, at the sound of the worship, the doorposts and the thresholds shook their worship. He's not saying like, oh, it's loud at the throne. He's saying, it's so loud, things shake. 
What is the decibel level required to make walls shake and a floor move? This is thunderous adoration. These angels, these beings, these seraphim, they're proclaiming with such a loud intensity, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that Isaiah feels the ground moving beneath his feet. It is a thunderous praise of adoration. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And when God would show himself throughout the Old Testament, there were occasions where he made his presence seen visibly with smoke. As the Jews left slavery from Egypt, they followed God in a cloud as he hovered out there in front of them. And that's how they walked. When God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up and God's presence in a cloud comes down and surrounds the mountain and the people saw When his presence came into the temple, the temple was filled with smoke. And here, Isaiah, he's trying to describe this whole thing. God's lifted up. He's high on a throne. There's the train of his robe is everywhere. These beings, they're they're worshiping in a thunderous way. The ground is shaking. And his presence, his presence, the smoke, his presence is everywhere. There's no containing or stopping it. He's everywhere. His presence is everywhere. Isaiah gets this incredible vision of God. You know what he doesn't do? He doesn't worship. He doesn't drop to his knees. He doesn't give praise because he can't. Look at what his response is. Look at what he does. Verse five, woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined from a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He's seen the King, he's seeing God. And now that he has seen God, he sees himself for who he really is for the very first time. In the context of this holy, holy, holy God, Isaiah realizes that he is far more evil than he ever thought. And so he pronounces woe to himself. This is what prophets would say to tax collectors and sinners. Woe to you. This is a lament. Oy, it's a condemnation, a judgment, a grieving. Prophets would say this to other people, never to themselves. But here, Isaiah, seeing the holiness of God and seeing his sin, he can't help but to say, woe to me, I'm ruined. He's saying, I'm being undone. I'm being ripped apart. I need to die. He's being crushed by the holiness of God. And he says in this personal and corporate confession, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He didn't say I'm a man of unclean heart or an unclean mind. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And this could be because he hears what the seraphim are saying. He says, I can't even say what they're saying. Or it could be for him that as a prophet, the one thing he could possibly cling to for self-righteousness 
are the words that come from his mouth as a prophet of God. And he realizes now in the context of a holy God that he has no self-righteousness to cling to. There's no point in looking at that. It's nothing compared to the holiness of God. I am wrecked. I am ruined. Woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips. I have nothing to cling to for righteousness in myself. He makes this confession. And look at what he sees next. I think this must have been a moment of panic for him. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Isaiah knew from stories from the past where God would show up with his fire as a sign of judgment and it would consume It would be the end of somebody's life. And so here Isaiah, he sees God. He sees him lifted up. He hears the worship. He sees himself for who he really is. And now this burning being takes fire from God and starts to fly to him. Like like imagine this, like a hundred miles an hour. How do you brace yourself for an impact like this? How do you get your heart ready for what's coming at you? but he had no idea what was actually in store. The seraphim, it flew to him and it took the coal and it touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. He just got done confessing. I'm a man of unclean lips and this being takes this coal and brings it to his lips, touches his lips and says, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Imagine what this is like for Isaiah. In one moment, he's being crushed by the holiness of God. He realizes in this moment that he is far more ever evil than he ever thought. And now he hears that his sins atone for. He's forgiven. And he realizes that he's more loved than he ever dreamed or hoped for. He was crushed by the holiness of God and lifted up by the love of Jesus. Atonement changed him. And here it's an angel, later it would be the sun. Here it's a coal and later it's the cross. But this is a powerful moment for Isaiah where he finally sees how loved he really is. He is far more loved than he ever, ever dreamed he could be. God's plan from the foundation of it all has always been to bring people into relationship with him. This is what God's always been up to. It's what God's been doing. And Isaiah, now he's overwhelmed with this moment. He was crushed by the holiness of God, lifted up by the love of God. And then he hears God speaking, this triune God. And hears the, the voice of the Lord say, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? God's talking. The Father, Son, Spirit are talking about who's going to do the next part of what our plan is as we're bringing humanity into a relationship with us. And look at what happens here for Isaiah. Just a moment ago, he's saying, woe to me. Woe to me. I'm ruined. I'm undone. And then he experiences the atonement and the love of God. And now he's boldly approaching the throne of grace 
See, the throne of God isn't just a throne of wrath, it's a throne of grace, and he's full of love and compassion. And Jesus changes lives forever, and Isaiah in this moment sees that his life has been radically changed, so much so that he boldly approaches the throne of grace and says, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. God didn't demand this of Isaiah. He didn't command him to do this. This was a conversation that God's having and Isaiah willingly walks in and says, yes, I will go. Here I am, send me. It's the most logical conclusion for him to come to because he got to see how holy God is and how loved he is. So if you read through Isaiah, you see what his journey is. It's a hard road. He's got a tough message to bring because there is destruction that was coming for Judah. The message that he had to proclaim was that it is gonna get bad. It's gonna be devastating to the point that it's just the land is just tree stumps. But there is a holy seed that will come and there will be a new king. And it happened 600 years later. Jesus, the holy, holy creator of life, added humanity to his divinity and lived his life here on earth. 33 years he walked this planet, loving people, listening to people, meeting their needs. And the one who breathed life into creation ultimately found himself on a cross fighting for his own breath. Jesus was on the cross, taking the woe, taking the condemnation, taking the judgment and the punishment for your sin and for mine and for all of humanity. And Jesus breathed his last breath and he died. And when he died, the earth shook. The ground of the temple shook. The doorpost shook. The temple was shaking the curtain, separating the holy of holies from everywhere else was ripped from heaven to earth as the doorposts shook because God proclaimed he's doing something new. He's making all things new. Jesus didn't just preach and teach on resurrection. He embodied resurrection. He defeated death and defeated sin. And now what we get to recognize, it's the same thing that Isaiah ultimately found out as well, is that it is in Jesus that there is victory. He has victory over sin. He has victory over death. So we too can proclaim that Jesus is almighty. He is our victory. Do you hear that? You have victory in Jesus. You are victorious because of Jesus and what he's done. You can live in that truth and proclaim that to be true. And not only do you have a king that loves you, but you have been brought into a relationship with him. He has given his holiness to you. When you put your faith in him, you have a new identity and you're given his perfect record. And you're brought into a family. You have a seat at a table. You've been given a new name and you belong. And you are new. And he is doing something new through you. See what God did with Isaiah, it's the same thing he does with us. 
God gave Isaiah an upward vision of himself, of how good God is. God gave Isaiah an inward vision of who he is, who he was as a sinner, but then also how loved he was and how new he is with the atonement. And God also gave Isaiah an outward vision for people. This is what God does for you and for me. He gives us an upward vision. We see him, how good he is, how great he is, how holy he is, how other he is. We see also, as we look into ourselves, he gives us an inward vision to see what he's done in our lives and how loved we are, that we've been given a new name, a new identity. And he puts his spirit in us which then changes our outward vision of others. And we're now living with a different view. We see people, not with a feeling of love. Yes, that sometimes, but we're compelled with the power of love of Christ in us. And so we engage in relationships in a different way. And we lean in and we press in and we don't judge and we don't condemn, but we listen and we love and we go with a heart of curiosity and empathy and compassion. And it's with this upward view of God, this upward vision of him, this inward vision of who we are new in Christ and this outward vision that we have for others compelled by love. When we take that vision of what we see, it changes the way we see our doubts, our insecurities, our fears, our busyness. All of that seems meaningless and nothing compared to how holy he is, how loved we are, and how many people there are that need to know the goodness of Jesus and his love for their lives. my prayer for us today is that we lean in and let Jesus give us a vision of him, of who we are and who he wants to love through us.